Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as the Conservative Party of Canada is searching for a new leader, the question of identity has come up. We'll get into that in just a couple of minutes. Also, a lot of people are feeling left in the dark when it comes to this new transportation task force. One of the frustrated city councillors will join us. And trimming down that 3.8% budget increase here at the City of Hamilton is going to be a problem for an awful lot of taxpayers. We'll explain. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There have been some different twists and turns, and as we talked about uh, earlier this week, it has seemed that uh, the big story about this race so far seems to be who's not running as opposed to who is running for it. And uh, with some of the bigger names, Rana Ambrose among them, of course, and Pierre Prolivier, uh, not running and deciding not to run. I mean, there were a lot of rumors about that for a long, long time. Uh, there was even some rumblings that Stephen Harper should run again. I'm not so sure that came from Mr. Harper himself, but certainly there were some loyalists within the Conservative Party that thought that uh, maybe we should go back to those glory days when we held power in this country. Well, there's at least one individual that uh, doesn't seem to think that's the case. Uh, her name is Elise Mills, and she is a, a consultant, a political consultant, that has done a lot of work for the Conservative Party over the last little while. And in uh, what turned out to be, I think, a rather candid interview, uh, she suggested that maybe part of the problem here is the Conservatives uh, have a bit of an identity crisis right now. Uh, this is a pivotal point for them, obviously. Anytime you're looking for a new leader, uh, you're also looking for new leadership in many situations like this. Uh, is it time to, to revamp the party? It's a, it's a discussion I think a lot of people in the Conservative Party have had behind closed doors. But uh, now it's out, and uh, it's uh, it's something I guess they're going to have to deal with. Joining us to talk about all this is Steve Pakin. Steve, of course, is host of The Agenda, which is seen every weeknight on TVO. Steve, great to have you back on the program. How are you doing today? Always a delight to be with you, Bill. Thanks so much. Good. Uh, interesting ob- uh, observations from uh, Elise Mills, who, as we mentioned just before you joined us here, has, has done a lot of work for the Conservative Party. Uh, and sometimes you need a consultant. You need somebody from the outside looking in to, to analyze exactly what's going on. Uh, I, I guess from a political standpoint, this is a, a suggestion, I guess, for her to maybe this party needs a makeover. Well, let's remember what the Conservative Party of Canada is. Um, it, it's not that old a party, right? This is yeah. a party that was put together by Stephen Harper and Peter McKay, and it's an amalgamation of a bunch of parties that basically, you know, the old PC party mostly, which exploded at the end of the 1993 election. Um, you know, some of us who are old enough to remember that election remember that the party came back with two seats. Uh, Kim Campbell was the leader. It was a terrible election. And basically what happened was the the sort of Western reformist part split off to the Reform Party. There were the Red Tories, the old progressive conservative party. There was a sort of a Quebec nationalist wing that became the Bloc Québécois. And, uh, you know, there were social conservatives as well, democratic conservatives, economic conservatives, foreign policy conservatives. All of these groups, when Brian Mulroney was the prime minister, more or less uh, got along under, you know, this big blue tent. And then after that 1993 election, which was so bad for the party, it just exploded into all these different parts. Uh, it took a few elections, but eventually all of those groups came back together again in this single Conservative Party of Canada. But as you point out, Bill, this is, you know, there's always, every time there's a new leadership uh, uh, convention for the Conservatives, uh, there is this sort of um, looking inside its heart to figure out which strand of the party is going to emerge as the uh, sort of dominant strand. And, you know, for the last uh, decade and a half, it's been the sort of Stephen Harper, small C, conservative, Western, alienated, a bit angry, frustration, that kind of thing. Uh, but now that Mr. Harper's gone, we'll see what emerges next time. 
and in that therein lies the debate and the discussion and and uh, in, in seeing uh, some of the comments from from Elise Mills and I think she's actually probably uh, echoing a, a number of the concerns that a lot of people within the party are saying right now is who they select in June is really going to be the face of the party and 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 what do they bring to the party and I, I've heard an awful lot of consternation that uh, the this group that's running right now for the leadership uh probably is not the way they want to go. Uh, Ms. Milsick herself said that she's very concerned and disappointed in the people that have stepped up. They're looking, I think, Steve, I guess everybody is, uh, somebody like a Brian Mulroney, you know, somebody who's, you know, 35 to 50 years old, uh, maybe from outside politics altogether that brings a fresh face, new ideas. But uh, those sorts of candidates don't grow on trees. Well, uh, and and those of your listeners who really didn't like Brian Mulroney are not going to be happy to hear me say this, but Brian Mulroney was an extraordinary politician, and the likes of, of that kind of politician come along once every few generations. Uh, they don't grow on trees. And, you know, whether you liked him or whether you didn't like him, you have to acknowledge his place in history. Uh, he's the only other conservative prime minister in Canadian history besides Sir John A. Macdonald to win back-to-back majority governments. And he somehow managed to keep all of those disparate elements relatively satisfied under the big blue tent until, of course, it all ended after he left. But let's put it this way. I, you know, the, the interesting thing about the conservative leadership race to me this time is, is less about who's running and more about who's not running. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find it very unusual that, that uh, Jean Charest, uh, who was a very successful Quebec premier, won three straight elections, something nobody had done in 80 years. Uh, he decided to take a pass. Pierre Poilievre, uh, who's a you know, bilingual from Alberta, Ontario MP, uh, he could have been the next face of the Conservative Party, as, as you put it, uh, has good roots in the West, uh, could give expression to that kind of Western alienation that the old Reform Party represented. He took a pass. Um, uh, you know, Rana Ambrose, the former interim leader, uh, who many people thought not only could win the leadership, but could win the next election against a somewhat damaged Prime Minister Trudeau. She took a pass. There is something about this. There is something about this job that apparently is less than... Uh, thrilling, or certainly less than what it might have been a generation ago. Funnily enough, this is what our show is going to be tonight at 8 and 11 on TVO. Oh, good. We're, we're, we're sort of looking into this whole reason of, of why this prize doesn't seem to be as prize-worthy as it once was. But um, I don't think we should minimize um, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole are two perfectly fine, perfectly good, perfectly strong candidates which will represent different wings of the progressive of the excuse me conservative party of canada and they'll have it out and there'll be a bunch of uh, so-called fringe candidates as well and and what emerges we'll see i think it's it's i think it's important to point out bill that one of the things that i have heard reflected back to me over and over since andrew Scheer lost the last election is that if you look at all of the leaders of the conservative party since it became the Conservative Party, so we're going back to 2004 now, uh, almost every single one's been from Western Canada, yeah. only two exceptions. And uh, th- th- I think there is a strong sense that I'm hearing reflected back to me this time that whoever the next leader of the party is, it should be somebody from east of Manitoba, because as the last election results showed, this is a party that is uh, nowhere in the big cities of this country, and in particular is nowhere in the province of Ontario, which is, of course, the biggest prize. Part of that it could be, well be personality and, and geography, as you mentioned, Steve. Obviously, the, the Harper influence is still there. 
Uh, I mentioned to one of our, our poli-sci guests a couple of days ago, I said, I don't remember in recent political history somebody who still seems to have so much sway within a political party that he left almost five years ago now. But it's it's almost like, you know, they've got something like, what would Stephen do? Uh, that seems to be the, the motto. Uh, and they've got to get over that. They've got to turn the page because Canadian voters have turned the page. Well, you've got to remember, Mr. Harper uh, is one of the founders of this party, and he cares a great deal that the party not become. Remember, but one of the reasons you just said what you just said is that Stephen Harper told his associates and, and urged them to let it be known that if Jean Charest was going to run for the leadership of the party, Mr. Harper was essentially going to come out of retirement and make his life miserable. Uh, he, he is very much against the Conservative Party of Canada uh, kind of turning into a much more moderate, much more centrist, much more pragmatic, um, not conservative enough party. He does not want that to be the Conservative Party of Canada's future. And remember, he, he even though he's no longer the leader, he had a position on the Conservative Fund, which is the organization that raises money to help the Conservative Party run campaigns. He, main, he maintained, and given who he was, he maintained a very strong outsized influence on that organization, and therefore uh, let it be known that he wants the Conservative Party ideologically to remain where it was when he was the leader, and where it was, frankly, when Andrew Scheer was the leader. Uh, there are some Conservatives, I think many of them in Ontario, who think, well, that's all well and good, uh, and it may have been well and good 15 years ago when you won your first election, um, but it's now 2020, and it's really not I'm, – I'm reflecting the views of these people right now. I'm not offering a personal view. These are what they say. It's really not appropriate in the year 2020 for a leader of the Conservative Party to appear to be so homophobic. It's not appropriate for the leader of the Conservative Party to represent only a minority of Canadians who would feel very comfortable with much more right-wing views as it relates to the economy and foreign policy. It's time to, in their view, modernize the party – so that it can broaden its base and be more attractive to just the one-third of Canadians who like that. And as we saw in the last election, Bill, if you win a third of the votes and you're the Conservative Party leader, you're going to have a wonderful time being leader of the opposition for the rest of your life. You've got to broaden the base. You need to do better than 34% or you're not going to win. I, well, that I was one of the things. Conservatives who want to win now. That, that was one of the things that this consultant, Ms. Mills, said. She said, we seem to be stuck in 2011, um, you know, for, in our, our philosophical mindset here. Uh, which is what got Stephen Harper elected, obviously. But I mean, there was a lot of consternation about Paul Martin and the Liberals then too, the, sure. which all plays into it, just about every election. We we understand that. But uh, Stephen Harper, of course, when the party was amalgamated and and he and Peter McKay got together and, and cut their deal, uh, the word progressive was left off the party from there on in. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people are concerned about right now. And I heard a lot of that on election night when it became evident that they were not going to gain power that night, Steve is uh, a number of people that were small-c conservatives were accused of leaving the party. And uh, one of them, including my friend Charles Adler, uh, who was on the Global Broadcast that night, said, I have not left the party. The party has left me. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And that is not a new phenomenon. You know, we've heard that many times through history. I, I think the first guy I heard say it was Ronald Reagan, yep. who, of course, was a Democrat back in the day. And he said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. They changed. They became different. They be, their values changed, and they are not. And you see it in the United States today. You know, whatever the Republican Party used to represent for the last 50 years, it clearly does not represent anymore now that Donald Trump is the leader. And people like George Will and David Frum have said, we're still Republicans. We represent the same Republican values that have existed for the last 50 years. Uh, it's the party that's left us. 
And I, uh, I have no doubt but that there are plenty of Canadians uh, who look at the Conservative Party of Canada as it has existed under Andrew Scheer, under Stephen Harper, under Deborah Gray, under Stockwell Day, under all of these Western-based uh, political leaders. Well, you can throw and, Preston Manning in there, too. Uh, of course, Preston Manning, the original Reform Party. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And, and they have said to themselves, look, I'm where I always was. I'm a, you know, the, they could say, I'm a moderate Bill Davis, progressive, conservative. I believe in balanced budgets, but I also believe in, in you know, treating people fairly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more liberal on social issues, but I'm, you know, I'm a stickler on, on fiscal and foreign policy issues. That's what conservatism means to me. And the federal Conservative Party of Canada doesn't represent enough of that anymore in their view. And therefore, they would say the party has left me. Yes, I hear a lot of that. So where do they go here? And this is a decision that they're going to have to make. Uh, they've got a little bit of time, obviously, you know, between choosing a leader and, and what's going to happen with the minority parliament. Do they do they look in the mirror and say, okay, maybe we need to move back a little bit to the center? Do we stick to our guns because that's who we are uh, and live with the consequences, which, as you say, might be you know on the other side of the opposition benches for the long time? Well, you know, they always say that um, these decisions are made by the people who show up. Uh, so you tell me who's going to show up, and I'll tell you where the party's going to end up. <laughs> I mean, the, the reality is that uh, I guess for the next couple of months, the people who are running for the leadership, and in the moment, the two big candidates are Peter McKay and Aaron uh, O'Toole. They're going to be out, and their organizations are going to be out trying to sign up members as fast and, and as hard as they can. And then when it comes to decision day uh, near the end of June, uh, you know, whoever signs up the most members and accumulates the most points, remember, this is not going to be a delegated convention, and this is not one person, one vote. This is interesting. This is something Peter McKay insisted on before he agreed to the merger of the parties back in the early 2000s. He said it's not one member, one vote, meaning whoever gets the most votes wins. It's a point system. So every riding is worth 100 points. And whoever gets, you know, you, you get points based on the percentage of the votes that you get in that riding. So if you're in Calgary and the riding's got 5,000 members, it's worth 100 points. If you're in Oshawa and the riding's got 200 members, it's still worth 100 points. So th this is a way of making sure that the Western-based conservatives did not overwhelm the smaller numbers of more moderate, pragmatic, progressive conservatives in Ontario. And we'll see. That, that certainly gives Peter McKay a big advantage here, uh, because a lot of the writings where there are fewer conservatives and maybe um, you know more progressive conservatives as opposed to small-c conservatives, um, he can go sign them up because he is sort of the standard bearer for that kind of conservatism. And he obviously needs to sign up many fewer people than, say, somebody who is coming at it from a more right-wing point of view, and he'll get just as many points for doing so. I, that may sound a bit complicated, but uh, it's important because that's the system that Doug Ford used to win his election. And what often happens, or what happened in his case, was he actually won fewer votes than Christine Elliott, fewer ridings than Christine Elliott, but he got more points and won. So how you play this game and how you sign up people and where you sign them up and in what ridings, all of that makes a huge difference. And once they figure all that out, then we'll know what kind of Tory party we've got. That's uh, one of the great conundrums of our political system these days, too. I mean, we've got a guy in the White House who lost the popular vote. Uh, we've got a guy in Ottawa right now who uh, didn't get as many votes as the opposition leader. Right. And we've got a premier that didn't even get as many votes as those. So, uh, what's, this is, the world is upside down, Steve. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> Yeah, it's very, it's very different, but we, we do have to remember that these rules were put in place uh, for a reason, and uh, as it relates to the Conservative Party, the reason was 
the the sort of mostly Ontario-based Red Tories did not want to become overwhelmed by the much more numerous Western-oriented Stephen Harper conservatives. And that's why Peter McKay said, we'll keep, you know, if you want to keep splitting the party and, you know, you guys run as the Canadian Alliance and we'll run as the progressive conservatives and we'll continue to split the center-right vote and the liberals can keep winning elections from now until time immemorial, if you want to keep going that way, that's fine. But we're not merging these parties unless there's some recognition for the special status of red Tories. And Stephen Harper eventually said, OK, I'm going to put that water in my wine and we're going to make that deal. And they did. And uh, the, the result is it's ironic. Here we are all these years later. Peter McKay may actually personally be able to take advantage of a system that he put in place specifically for this purpose, specifically for the reason that that the more moderate Tories not become overwhelmed in the party by the Western-based uh, smaller-C conservatives. we got to pick it up, I, I guess, later on. We're just about out of time here, but I'll leave it to you to pick it up later on on the agenda tonight, Steve. I'll, I'll be watching. Great. Nice to talk to you again. Thanks so much, Steve. Steve Pakin, of course, host of the agenda. You can catch that uh, discussion tonight as they, they talk about the conservative leadership race as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as we reported uh, here at CHML uh, earlier this week, uh, Tuesday specifically, the uh, newly minted transportation task force that uh, the uh, transportation ministry at Queen's Park uh, assembled had their first meeting. And we're told that, uh, well, they're not sure when the next one's going to be. Uh, they're not sure exactly what they're going to be recommending. They're not even sure where they're getting their information from. And if you think that's confusing and you, you don't feel as if you're getting the full picture here, well, uh, join the crowd. Uh, so does Hamilton City Council feel the same very way about this, especially now because we're told, and I've heard this uh, from some of the members uh, of the force themselves, the task force themselves, they're not allowed to talk to the public. They're not even allowed to talk to city council about that. And that's uh, raising a great deal of concern on city council uh, because those are the people that we elected as citizens of this community to make the decisions about transportation plans, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one of those concerned counselors, John Paul Danko from Ward 8, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, John Paul, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. How does it feel to be in the dark with everybody else here? I mean, you guys are only the elected officials that are supposed to make these determinations. I think extremely frustrating is an understatement. Uh, everyone on council was elected to serve our constituents and uh, the residents of the city of Hamilton. And that is our job, is, is to communicate with residents and to represent what uh, we consider to be their interests and, and their views. And we can't do that if uh, the province is holding secret meetings, um, you know, in secret root back doors, back rooms in Toronto. It's, it's, it's uh, I don't know, it seems unprecedented to, uh, to go about business this way. And by the way, I don't, I'm not going to speak for you, but I mean, from my perspective on this, I know many of the people that have appointed to this task force, and i got a great deal of respect for them. They're all upstanding people that I know care about this community a lot. But they didn't set the rules. This is, this is coming from Queen's Park. Well, I have no concerns about uh, the people that have been selected to the, the, the Transportation Task Force. I have no doubt that they are you know, working towards what they think are the best interests of the, the city of Hamilton. And for our city manager, Jeanette Smith, as, as one of those members, I have full confidence in her ability. She's one of the most capable people that I know, and I couldn't think of a better representative for Hamilton in this scenario. But the fact is, is that's not her job. Her job as a city manager is to run the corporation of the city of Hamilton. It's council's job to set policy. And when it comes to the overall 
future of our entire trans- transit system in Hamilton, um, our economic development policy, our growth plans, our tax policy and implications, those are all policy things that is in council's job to set and to set direction. And to be completely shut out of that in this case, um, you know, it's, I, I don't even know how, how, this, how this task force can do its job in secret and hope to have any legitimacy. Well, there's an old analogy that's always been used in politics about who's doing the rowing, who's doing the steering. Uh, and, and technically, what it's supposed to be is city council does the steering. In other words, they point the direction. This is the policy. This is the way we're going. And then your staff do the grunt work. They do the rowing. Uh, this panel is doing both. Well, I think it just shows the disdain that this provincial government has for municipal government. And I think all municipal government and, and people in every municipality across Ontario should be concerned about that. And to me, anyway, it just shows a, um, you know, a lack of understanding of the policy that the pro- provincial government is making. I mean, if you go back to Carolyn, the Minister of Transportation, Carolyn Mulroney's decision in the first place, there was a secret cost estimate done by secret consultants with a secret decision that was made behind closed doors in Toronto and then they even tried to make a secret announcement in Hamilton and ended up getting run out of town with a police escort. So they have learned nothing from this. And, you know, they're, they're continuing that pattern of secrecy and attempting to keep the, the residents of Hamilton completely in the dark and council. Well, let's uh, put this in perspective, too, though. I mean, this is the same provincial government uh, that uh, arbitrarily decided they were going to reduce the size of Toronto City Council. Uh, that had announced uh, not too long ago to John Paul that they were going to reorganize uh, a number of regional governments here in this province. Now, they seem to have walked back from that one so far anyway. Uh, so there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of respect for, for, for local councils and the impact that they have and the responsibilities that they have. And even beyond that uh, disdain for municipal government, I think there's some real big questions about how can these members of the task force actually do their job in in coming up with viable solutions for transportation in Hamilton without, you know, by having to sign a non-disclosure agreement without being able to discuss this with their peers and colleagues? So in um, city manager Jeanette Smith's case, she has access to all the resources of the city of Hamilton as the city manager. So our tax people, our finance people, our you know, planning growth and economic people, all of these tie into the decision that she's being tasked to make. So if she's signing a non-disclosure agreement, she can't even talk to these subject matter experts to help her with the decision-making process. And I assume that would be the same for every other member of the task force. How can they possibly do this job of coming up with transportation projects worth a billion dollars that will affect the next generation of transportation in Hamilton um, without being able to talk about it. Where are they getting their information from? Do you have any idea at all? I mean, uh, you know, did, have they accessed uh, the city of Hamilton's capital budget plans or, or, and, and projections for the next eight, eight or ten years? Are, are they making it up as they go along? I mean, I, that's, this is one of the things that I think is really concerning an awful lot of people right now is we don't even know what the parameters are here, they, except for, quote-unquote, transportation. We don't know what the parameters are. We don't know what projects are going to be considered. And right now it seems that the province is completely driving the bus, pun intended. Um, One of the biggest concerns that I have, and you and I talked about this last time, is that the province will attempt to insert provincial responsibilities into this billion dollars that they've promised to Hamilton. 
things like Go Transit and All Day Go and widening or improving provincial hi- the provincial highway system. And in Go in particular seems to get tied up whenever we're talking about LRT or rapid transit in Hamilton. There's always the discussion that comes up about, well, why don't we just improve Go service and we want All Day Go instead? And, you know, of course, as a municipality, we want both. But the fact is, is that Go Transit is 100% of provincial responsibility. So if they try to roll projects like that into what was supposed to be a, uh, a city of Hamilton transportation transit project, um, you know, we're, we're losing out even more than we're already losing out right now. Well, is, is, did they even give you an indication that that might be on the table? Or do you have any indication yeah, so, at all? Uh, this is the whole thing. I mean, this is this uh, this is so frustrating right now because we're not quite sure uh, exactly where they're going to go on on this particular issue. I, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the rumor too that uh, there was a great deal of consternation about this decision back in December, that being canceling the the ERT project. That uh, this may be a kind of a backdoor way to put the project back on the table. They may come back and simply say, you know what, you're going to get your LRT after all. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, we're only speculating, but that's all we can do at this stage. If you're you know, in favor of LRT, if you're against LRT, or you're just a, a resident that's concerned about how your tax dollars are going to be invested, you deserve to know publicly how those decisions are being made. You should know what reports are being considered. You should know what discussions are taking place. You should know what options are being considered. And nobody, including council, has any idea what this task force is going to consider. I'm still hopeful that, you know, they may cycle back to LRT, that that may be on the table. I think it's pretty clear that as a city, um, we need an east-west downtown rapid transit corridor, whether that's LRT or BRT or whatever, um, is in order to improve transit on the mountain, which is, again, my, you know, as a mountain counselor, that's my primary responsibility. In order to improve A-Line, which is a priority, we need that rapid transit corridor. And without knowing what's being considered, without tapping into the expert resources that we have, the subject matter experts at the City of Hamilton, whether that's HSR or the, um, the members that were in the, the Metrolink's LRT office, you know, we can't make those kinds of big picture um, decisions without having all that background information. And to, to, to force these people to sign a non-disclosure agreement um, to keep that all secret is, is, you know, it's ridiculous. Here's, this, you know, raises so many different questions. Why the non-disclosure agreement? In other words, why must this information be confidential? You debate this stuff in open session when you decide what we're going to do with our tax dollars and where we're going to build roads or, or put bus lines or LRT lines. I mean, that was as transparent a process as we've seen in municipal government. Uh, even if people didn't like the result and didn't like the direction, at least they knew what was going on. Why all of a sudden this cloak of secrecy? And, you know, say what you will about the, the LRT debate. You know, it, it went on over 12 years or so, and it was quite acrimonious. But at the very least, it was a public discussion, and people knew where your councillor stood on it. And through the democratic process, you could hold your, your city councillor and the mayor responsible. And right now, there's nobody that was, is going to be responsible for this because the decisions are being considered in secret. Um, and, like, it, it just, it just even if they 
provide the city manager a resource or an outlet to, to give council updates, uh, I'm pretty sure that those are going to be dictated to be in camera. And again, you know, we're going to be, so we'll find out what's going on, but we have no say about it, and it's going to be in camera anyway. I mean, that's that's just not the way that uh, we should be doing government in this country. The old, the only rationale, of course, for going into camera is usually if it's a negotiation uh, or if it has a personnel issue, uh, something of that regard. And there, I know some people don't like the idea of going behind closed doors for anything, but there are some legitimate reasons. Uh, but I don't understand how you can apply that that theory, that closed-door theory, to this process right now. This is public money for public transportation, uh, and, and we should at least be aware of what's going on. I mean, you know, I, I use this example uh, when this was announced, of course. Uh, when the province stepped in and decided they were going to impose regional or uh, one-tier government on us back in, uh, well, the late 1990s, it started in the 2000 election, of course, there was a transition board that, yes, they appointed but it was citizens here. But those were open sessions. I mean, I could go to the meeting and say, hey, what are you guys talking about today? This is is just insanity that they're just going to say, you guys have no access to this, to the information, to the process, or anything else. Exactly. And under the Municipal Act, as a council, as, as you alluded to, there are provisions that allow us to go into private session to discuss things that have to do with personnel or property acquisition, or legal advice, and things like that. Things that, obviously, you can't discuss in public. But when it comes to transportation planning, and cost estimates, and long-term economic plans, and things like that, those are all things that, as a council, we have public discussion on. And the public discussion is really important. It's not just so that um, so that we, as a council, can talk about these things in, in, in publicly. It's so that the residents know what's going on, that they can, if they want to, be involved in the process, they can delegate on things. And it's also so that the, the press is able to report on this. I mean, I think that's the other thing that's a huge concern. By holding all of this in secret, the, the media is completely shut out of it, and there's not going to be any reporting until whatever the province decides it is that they want to release and control the message on. Is four weeks enough time to get this done? I, I mean, I, I'm holding my tongue here to make some comments about how long it takes city council to make up decisions about something. But you guys have access to that information. These are people that are not involved in this process in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and they're going to have to, all of a sudden, whatever information they're going to be given, and I don't even know where it's coming from, but in the space of a, just a few weeks there, they're going to have to come up with a plan and present that plan. That seems awfully rushed to me. There's no way that you can come up with a comprehensive transportation plan for the city of Hamilton to invest a billion dollars of taxpayers' money in less than a month. That's purely impossible, um, not with any validity or rigor to it anyway. Um, and the fact is that, yeah, it does sometimes take council a long time to make decisions, but you can i hope i hope residents anyway appreciate the the thought and investigation and due diligence that goes into those decisions um just last week we had a report by our hsr people um that showed a time lapse of of transit service throughout the city of hamilton it's information like that that needs to be reported publicly and discussed publicly so that we can really understand what our trans transit and transportation needs are and the fact that uh, we're going to be completely shut out of that process, I think everybody in the city needs to be very concerned about that. There's a, a conundrum here. And again, I, I've only talked to one of the members of the panel. That was before this thing was even struck. Uh, 
that they really are between a rock and a hard place here. I don't know that anybody's comfortable with this process. I know the mayor's been quite vocal about this. You have and a number of your council colleagues. I certainly have, uh, right from the day that uh, the, the minister announced that this is the way they were going to handle things. But on the other hand, if if I got that phone call, or as, as these people did, that say, we want you on there, you got to figure, look at I'd rather be inside the process than, than just outside and, and not knowing what's going on. I mean, this is far too important. So I get that. But, but boy, the, I, the pressure on these people now to get it right uh, is, is just enormous at this stage. And you know what? We don't know because we don't know what they're going to be doing or how they're going to be doing it. We don't even necessarily know what they're going to be presenting back to the minister. And we don't know if the minister will even accept their recommendations. Exactly. So These are recommendations. If, this is not this is not binding by any stretch. So say, for example, that they make a recommendation to proceed with LRT or BRT or whatever. They report that to the minister. The minister has the, the final authority to say, no, I'm not going to take your recommendation, and then goes in a completely different direction on her own. We will never know about that because everybody has signed a non-disclosure agreement. And um, those kinds of scenarios are what cast doubt in the validity of this entire process, which I think is a huge concern for everybody. And the only recourse that we have as a council, the only protest that we could make will be to direct uh, our city manager not to participate. And then, as you said, we would be shut out of the process and have no say whatsoever. Well, there are voices on that committee that I think understand where we need to go here, uh, but we don't know exactly you know, whether that's going to carry the day. And we don't, as we say, no one for the ministry is even going to accept that too. That's uh, look, at, we're not going to give up on this. I mean, we are endeavoring in, at our side here uh, to try to find out what's going on and try to get as much information, if any information, that we can. Uh, good luck with this, John Paul. We'll see what happens in the next few weeks. Thank you, Bill. John Paul Danko, of course, the uh, city councillor for Ward 8. A lot of concern, a lot of speculation about this. A lot of emails as we had our conversation right here this morning. Uh, One from Alexis here at uh, bkelly at 900chml.com. She says, the only emotion I can muster with regard to this task force is incredulity. The level of condensation that this provincial government has visited upon our municipal council. I am not sure with which governing body I am more ticked the province for imposing a committee structure that reports to them regarding our transportation issues, or the city council who put us in this position in the first place. I wash my hands of both of them. Uh, Alexis, I think you're articulating the frustration a lot of people in this community feel about how this process is unfolding, and we will stay on it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, I want to talk uh, your property taxes. Uh, as you know, City Council is uh, pushing through the budget right now for 2020, and uh, the projections they've been giving us this week indicate that uh, they're trying to trim down from about a 3.8% budget increase. Uh, on average, we may be facing a tax increase on our property taxes of, of about 145 bucks. Now, of course, that's going to depend on where you live. But is, is that sustainable? And is it payable? John Best from the Bay Observer is joining us right now to get into the the nuts and bolts of this. John, thanks for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. My pleasure, Bill. They had a a, a bit of a debate at City Council, as you know, the other day. And uh, when you mention this to City Councilors or to the Mayor, they get a little bristly about this when you say, hey, we're the highest tax municipality uh, in the province. And they, they bring out statistics and spreadsheets to say, no, we're not. 
Uh, we're sort of in the middle. Uh, but you know, there's one element of this, John, that they never seem to bring up, and that's the ability to pay. Our, our average income in this city is lower than a lot of those places that, that are, are, you know, different tax rates. And the ability to pay is a real problem for an awful lot of people when it comes to property tax. No question, Bill. I mean, you know, I look at the number 145 a year. Can I? Could I deal with that? Uh, yeah, that's uh, maybe a couple, maybe one coffee a week. Uh, no big deal, but. I keep thinking about, uh, you know, maybe a, a pensioner, uh, maybe a, a widowed pensioner uh, living in, uh, you know, somewhere in maybe East Hamilton who's living on the, uh, you know, the, the old age pension and, and uh, maybe just the guaranteed annual supplement. So so they, I think the total that, that they earn is about uh, $19,000 a year. And uh, so right off the bat, they're paying roughly three or probably, you know, 3000 at least in, in taxes. So it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty big hit. And uh, that's part of the problem. I think most of us could live with 145 a year. But there's, there's people here that, that can't live with what they're paying now. And, you know, to my mind, the, the real issue here is, uh, we we need to kind of re-engineer uh, the way we operate uh, municipal government in Ontario. Uh, you know, when they, when, you're right, you were talking about when staff, uh, when we talk about us being the highest tax jurisdiction in Ontario, and then staff bring out uh, spreadsheets that show we're in the middle. The problem with that is that they're comparing us to other communities uh, where there is no more incentive there to cut than there is here. So it's uh, you know we're we're comparing um, systems that really aren't working in the long run and aren't sustainable. There, there are a couple of different levels here. One, I guess, is is you're right the the the, phys, the psychological aspect this is going to have on people. It's, it's a rather onerous uh, pressure in situations like this, and and we can get into a debate about uh, property taxes in general. I mean, it's a regressive tax because it's not based on your ability to pay. It's it's based on where you live. You know, I I don't like paying income tax to the federal or provincial governments either, but. Uh, technically, the way that system is supposed to be set up, the more you make, the more you pay, the less you make, the less you pay. But that, that all bets are off with property tax. If, 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 point's well taken, John. If you've lived in a house for the last 40 or 50 years, and uh, you know, you've seen the rise and fall of this, your income's certainly gone down because you're in a retirement mode right now. But they're taxing you. They don't, they don't care if you're making $100,000 or $19,000. You're going to get the same tax. doesn't seem fair. No, it, it's well, it's certainly not equitable in the sense of um, you know, if we're just looking at, uh, you know, almost every other program we have is geared to, uh, to some degree to uh, uh, a person's ability to pay, whether it's a consumption tax uh, like GST, HST, where the more money you have, the more money you spend, the more tax you pay. Uh, so this one is uh, really a problem. But, you know, I, I look at this budget process. I've been watching the City of Hamilton budget process for um, more than half of my life, I guess. And uh, the only thing I can say with any confidence is that the PowerPoints are looking better every year. Uh, they're, they're really getting good at that. <laughs> but, you know, in, in terms of the actual substance of, of our budget process, it's basically whatever we spent last year is plus inflation. And if we ask a department to do anything extra, then that goes on top of all that. Um, but, you know, to me, there's... 
no incentive whatsoever for our managers to try to actually uh, re-engineer, uh, create efficiencies. Um, and, and I, you know, I, people say, well, you know, you shouldn't be talking about running government like a business. And, and I kind of buy that. I, I don't think government can strictly run like a business. But surely to God, they could be more business-like. And, and in that regard... I would say one of our problems we have is that probably our compensation uh, package for managers, uh, it has no incentives uh, built into it. Uh, they're basically put on a grid with what managers are getting across the province. No incentive whatsoever on, on a performance basis. Certainly no incentive to find any efficiencies uh, other than peer pressure. So it's, you know, it's not a good system. Uh, you know, it, it, it does not in any way encourage uh, trying to do something creative to save money. So how do you rectify something like that? Uh, you could say that just about every level of government, but and we know that salaries, wages, and benefits are, are usually the driving force in just about every budget, municipal and, and others as well. But, you know, you're accused of being a cold-hearted you-know-what if you just say, okay, we're just going to start slashing. And there, there are some people that have tried to do it that way, and that doesn't usually work either. No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, draconian slashing is, is not the issue. I mean, I think the key is, uh, in, a, in a circumstance like Hamilton, like right now, I, I just looked at the, at the complement, the staff complement that they're proposing for this year, we're up to almost 7,300 employees now, uh, which is, um, you know, makes us, I don't know, third biggest employer in the city uh, behind the hospitals, I guess, and uh, maybe the Board of Education. Well, in fact, I think we're ahead of the Board of Educations, the two combined. But, you know, if, if we could cut staff, and that's where the number is, Bill. I mean, you know, three quarters or 70 to 75% of what we pay out is basically people. If you could if you could cut it by 1%, and that would just be attrition, there'd be no need to lay anybody off, you're talking 5 to $7 million savings. But in order to do that, we and, you know, the, of course, the quick answer back is, well, now what are we going to cut in terms of services? Well, in the private sector, uh, absorbing a 1% decrease in any part of your budget would be something you could do uh, you know, with with maybe a little bit of trouble, but with probably a little bit of creativity, there's there's simply no incentive for that here. There's nothing in it for a manager to try to make those kind of cuts. Uh, you know, we got a highly unionized staff, and and I'm not criticizing the union aspect of it, uh, but what it means is that your managers have no carrot and no stick. They've got nothing. All they can do is try to get people to to um, be as productive as they can persuade them and cajole them to be. What about the ability to pay? Let me focus on that for a couple of seconds. Is that sure. something that city council and staff, for that matter, should be factoring in when they start talking about where we are on that scale? Well, if they do that and if they address it with any, um, you know, with any seriousness, uh, I mean, the, the obvious solution is that we would have to build in some kind of tax relief program for those who can't afford it, which would probably mean we're going to have to increase uh, the tax increase for everybody else in order to absorb uh, not passing it on to those who simply can't afford to pay anymore. 
I mean, that, that would be the reality. Um, and, and, you know, maybe we have to go there, but I, I, I still would really, I, I think in our, our municipal form of government in Ontario, I'm not, I'm not being, not singling out Hamilton. I, I just think we need to come at it a, a whole different way if we're actually serious about solving. We've really got a systemic problem here, Bill, uh, that, that is not being solved. I mean, all we get is this annual budget dance, uh, talking about pressures, uh, PowerPoints, you know, they're submitting their business plans now. Well, they're, they're really not business plans. Uh, they're, they're simply, uh, here's what we're doing. We're doing a great job. Uh, here's, here's how much money we spent last year. Here's, uh, we need to add inflation this year and away we go. So it's, you know, I mean, that, that at the, at the moment, that's the, the pattern. And frankly, I don't see it changing unless we, we really fundamentally attack uh, our whole approach to municipal government and the provision of services. Aren't there too many sacred cows when it comes time for a budget? Well, there there are, and the biggest sacred cow is that we can't do anything the same for less. So the minute you talk about reducing costs, uh, the the answer that comes back from staff is reducing services. That wouldn't work in any private sector company that I'm aware of, uh, and you know, they're, they're looking for constant improvement, constant efficiencies and, and, and finding them, uh, you know, so there's, there's really a, a, a systemic core, uh, inability, I think, to, to deal with, uh, budgeting in, at, at, you know, maybe at all government levels, but certainly at the municipal level where we all get to look at it. Um, it's, uh, it's just a never-ending cycle, and, and at some point uh, there are going to be people at the lower end of the scale who are probably going to be forced out of their homes. And, you know, uh, rental is, is totally unaffordable. The only thing that's keeping these people going now is the fact that maybe their house has been paid for, so their only real cost is utilities and their taxes which is still cheaper than trying to find an apartment somewhere. But yeah, but some of those people selfishly want to eat, too, though, John. So, I mean, that's well, going to be a problem. Well, they do want to eat. And, uh, you know, so there's just a, you know, there, there doesn't appear to be any kind of a holistic approach. We're just, uh, uh, last year plus seems to be the pattern that, that I've seen for way too many decades. Of well, well, one of the things project. that I've noticed consistently, and, and this probably has been happening for generations now, uh, there's a real reticence here to to actually have a long, hard look, and 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 I think a candid look, at at what we do, and and this comes back to the you know services that we have to do, and some social services, absolutely, mandated services from the province, certainly, uh, you know, picking up the garbage. I, do we need to do it every week? I, I, you know, other municipalities don't, and they seem to be saving some money, and it's an efficient system. But they 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 just threw that off the table. We went on to go there. Uh, assets. Do we really need to own three golf courses, three municipal golf courses here in this city? Apparently, city council thinks so, but there's, you know, they just they don't want to have that discussion. And and those are some of the tough choices that other municipalities have had to make to try to make it a, a more efficient and I think a more fair system. Well, and and I think if you look at the budget process, uh, it's it's become more rushed uh, than ever. Um, I mean, we used to criticize uh, council because they sometimes didn't get this year's budget set until, you know, three, four or five months into the year. Uh, we, we seem to be better at that now. Uh, we get it done quicker. Um, however, uh, the downside of that is, is the process is rushed. 
I think the answer, Bill, if there was any any serious uh, interest in in trying to see if we can do things more efficiently, I'm I'm not one for cutting services until we've explored every possible efficiency. Uh, I think that's a cop out in many ways. It's an easy way of of, of getting council to move away from trying to get uh, cuts in spending. Uh, but I think the conversation that you're talking about needs to take place outside of the budget process. We need to spend the rest of this year talking about that and figuring out is there a way we can um, really get at uh, the systemic issue of uh, re-engineering the way we deliver services because that, that's really what it's going to take. And I don't see any willingness uh, to do that. I think the only way you could do it, frankly, is to is to revisit the whole compensation structure for management, so that uh, so that there's some real incentives built in. Uh, and and I think if you had that, you'd you'd uh, to be frank, I think you'd get some better management. You know, I, I hate to harken back to the early days of of the amalgamated city of Hamilton because uh, the growing pains were enormous, as you remember, John. But uh, we had a city manager at that point uh, that uh, basically said, let's try to find this. Uh, and uh, everything was on the table uh, and included how services are delivered, what services are being delivered, uh, and, and all sorts of things to do with, for instance, staffing and things of this nature. Uh, you know, private-public partnerships, uh, privatizing some things. Uh, but uh, that that seems to have gone. They get, by the way, there's so much pressure from city council. They fired that guy, the city manager, uh, basically for being a little bit too uh, crazy about some of these things and too radical, I suppose. Uh, and we're in a comfort zone right now. You know, any time you bring up an idea about private-public partnerships or or about privatization of some services, there's there's a a, a real concern. Uh, from a number of people on council to say, no, let's just leave things the way they are. You know, and, and, and that's part of the discussion that we're having. I know we've only got about a minute left here, John. But but when are we going to have a candid discussion about things like that? I mean, uh, the garbage collection I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. I, when I was on council, this is years ago, now, a huge debate about whether or not we should privatize it. They finally you know, settled on a compromise. Half the city is, is privatized, the other half is not. Uh, which I think gives a strong argument that maybe we could save more money if we did it you know, the other way and, and privatized everything. But nobody seems to want to even have that discussion. They don't. And, uh, you know, I, I wish I could uh, offer a glimmer of hope here. But frankly, uh, you know, again, it, it's going to take an engaged public. It's going to take pressure from the public. And it may even take, uh, uh, you know, some election casualties before you're really going to see any um, any substantial change, Bill? Uh, you know, I'm sorry to end it on a gloomy note, but there it is. Well, the election change is going to have to come from we, the voters. I mean, if if we're you know if the, these guys that we elect time and time and time again seem married to the status quo and the status quo is not working for us, then I think you know where the problem is. Anyway, uh, you're right. We have to break it off for here. I don't know that we've solved anything, John, but we've shone the light on a few of those things. We'll pick this up. We another, all feel better now. I think so. We'll pick this up another time. Thanks again. You're welcome, John Best from the Bay Observer. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.